Well, today, as we um, are getting close, actually, to the end of our series is that we've been doing on the parables. I love the parables. Um, we've been doing them for several months now, and we, I'm not even sure, maybe Jeff might be doing one next week, but, I, but we're getting close to the end of that. And as we do, I want to think back of the different parables we've um, gone through. And one of the things that we have seen over and over again in Jesus' parables is just how much he cares about us, how much he loves us, and how much um, the way in which we love others is so important in those parables. In fact, if you just take a look at last week, when Jeff did his sermon, he's been going through and doing John 15, Abiding in Christ. And in a sense, that's both a metaphor, a little bit of a parable. But if you notice in there, Abiding in Christ, that results in... As it says there, that we love one another. And so you have this theme of as we abide in Christ, the way we see that fruit of that, we see it through the way in which we treat others. And if you think about the vision of our church that we have is this little church here, really also reflects that idea that as we abide and have this deep relationship with Christ, we see that through the way in which we love others. So here's a test for you. Anybody know what the vision of our church is? What is it? Yeah. Those who are in the new members class, what is it? (laughs) All right, write all this down, okay? So the vision of our church is becoming like Christ... Ah, you got it. Becoming like Christ for the sake of others. Then we also have like the, the, then it's like if we were going to become like Christ for the sake of others, how do we do that? What do we as a little church say is what we want to be in which to accomplish that? How do we accomplish that? And that's what we call our mission statement. How do we actually go about accomplishing this becoming like Christ for the sake of others? Anybody know what our mission statement is? <laughs> okay. So our mission statement is to be a safe place to heal and a brave place to grow. A safe place to heal and a brave place to grow. I'll tell you that one of the things that I just absolutely love about our church and I really have experienced myself, is that that is who we are to church. We are a place that is safe to come in, a place to heal, and a place to grow. In fact, I have experienced that myself personally through watching my wife, Michelle, back there. Because in 2014, when we moved down here to Laguna, when we moved to Laguna Niguel, we did not have a church. And she has been hurt by churches a lot in her life and and really has struggled going back to churches and so we were like are we going to find a church where she can feel safe and in 2014 we had someone in the bay area who said yeah i've heard about this church called little church by the sea and so it was the first church we came to this church was the very first church we decided to visit and when we walked in the door the way we were great greeted the way in which we instantly felt like this is a place that we can heal, that she can even heal from church. 
And so, as you see, it's not just a safe place to heal, but it's also a brave place to grow. And it is so awesome to me to see her doing that. Um, You see her up here (laughs) playing the drums now. She's gone from being a safe place to heal to being a brave place to grow, that she can come up here in front of everyone. I can't tell you how big a video that is. And play for all of you. And it's just such a blessing, I know, for all of you, but it's a huge blessing for me to see how God has worked that way. And, you know, for our church to be that safe place to heal and brave place to grow, we must really take seriously how we treat one another. We all are on our journeys together. We're all on different journeys together. And as we look at each other, we're in a place where we're both healing and growing. It's so important that as we look at each other, we ask, how am I treating you? Am I treating all those, the ones I don't know, the ones I do know, the ones look different than me, the ones who are new, the ones who are walking in the door, the ones who've been here a long time? Are we a church that says we want, to really, we want it to really matter, really matter how we treat one another. And as we go through this parable today, we are going to look at the question, does it really matter how we treat one another? Does it really matter? Now, how many of you would say yes to that? All right. I mean, we, our initial response is, of course it matters how we treat one another. But I want you to think about, do those who meet you and see you and encounter you as you're driving down the road, do they know that matters? (laughs) Do those who scroll through your posts on social media know that how you treat others matter? And you know what? We're in that heightened, heightened political season again, aren't we, with elections coming up? Do those who take different political positions than you on issues, do those who are a different political party, do they who know you know it matters to you how you treat others? That is a question I want us to think about today as we go and we look at one of Jesus' parables, which really seeks to answer that question. Does it matter how we treat one another? Why does it matter how we treat one another? So if you can, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke 16. And we're going to look at verses 19 through 31. We will put it up here, on the, up, up there that you see. Um, and we are going to be looking at a parable that is known as a rich man and Lazarus. And what we're going to do is, I'm not going to read that parable to you first. What I want us to do is actually walk through it as if we're hearing it for the first time. What is Jesus trying to tell us as we walk through this parable? So again, Luke 16. And we're going to begin with verse 19. This is what it says. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. That's how the parable opens. Obviously talking and painting the picture of someone who is very rich. How rich? Well, the way it characterizes it is that this rich man, first of all, is wearing purple. In those days, you couldn't wear more expensive clothes. 
Purple dye is made from snails, and it's very, very rare, and it's very expensive. And what is he clothed in? He's clothed in purple. If you saw him, you would go, there's a guy who's got a lot of money. But not only is it his clothes, outer clothes, that is, that is in purple, that says how much money and how rich he is, but notice how it says he also is wearing fine linen. That's actually a term that refers to his undergarments, <laughs> the things you don't see. And guess what? He is wearing the most expensive fine clothes that just, uh, undergarments that just feel so good as he puts on that purple robe. And then Jesus says that this rich man feasted, there's a big word, sumptuously. He feasted sumptuously. Now, you get the idea that that means, of course, he, he was eating a lot and he was eating really good food. But in Greek, that word that we translate sumptuously actually means for show. That he was not just feasting for himself in the sense of eating, and wow, this tastes really good, but he was also feasting that way because he wanted to show off to others just how rich and how blessed that he was. So Jesus starts by painting this picture of this rich man. And I want you to notice what this rich man does. He uses everything he has to treat who? Himself. To treat himself. That's his focus with all the goods, all the food, all the wealth. He does that so he can not so much not treat others, but to treat himself. And then we move on to the next verse. So in verse 20, it says, At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So now you can see that we're painting the picture of someone really as extremely complete opposite as a rich man as you could think. And again, Jesus characterizes this in a way to really get the idea of what is this poor man going through. So it starts out by saying he is where? Where is this rich man? I mean, this poor man. Where is the poor man? He is at the gate of the rich man. So this gate is an outer gate. So in those days, if you had a big mansion, you would have an inner gate, which would take you into the residence, but you would have an outer gate that would take you into the courtyard that then would take you into the residence. What this is saying is that this poor man was sitting right at the entrance to that gate. So as he went, as anybody who came in and out, they would see him. And notice that it says he was laid there. He, and the Greek for that, the word again, which gets a lot of the meaning here, is that the word means thrown there. He wasn't just laying there. He was thrown there. For some reason, someone had taken him and just put him there. And he, it means he was so crippled that he couldn't move. He couldn't do anything but just be there. He might not even want to be there, but that's where, in essence, that he was thrown. And, of course, it says that he's poor. He's poor because he is completely dependent on how others treat him. If people don't give him any scraps of food, he gets nothing. If no one gives him water, he gets nothing. He is 100% dependent on how others treat him. 
And notice that it also says he has sores, just to even add to it. He's covered with sores, meaning he is not just crippled, but he is suffering constantly with these sores that are, that are infected on him. And these dogs that it talks about coming and licking these sores, these are not nice little dogs, <laughs> pet dogs. These are wild dogs that come up to him and probably try to get the soul to do something to lick those, souls, those sores. I mean, you're being painted a picture of someone who is in such a tragic situation here. So tragic, I mean, really the only people who get close to him is no one at all. It's the dogs. It's the wild dogs that get close to him. But Jesus does something with this poor man that he doesn't do in any other parables that he tells. He tells us the person's name. Nowhere else in a parable does Jesus tell us the person's name. All right, we're going to hear about Abraham in a minute, but that's, not the, that, that's referring to a different situation. But he's actually saying this poor man has a name. He's a person. He, has, he is a human. He's someone like us to care for. And so this name, Lazarus, says he's someone who not only we should care for, but his name actually means God helps. That's what Lazarus means. It means God helps. So Jesus gives him this name and says, he is someone that's known to God. He is someone that is personally known to God and really someone who God sees his circumstances. But no one else seems to see those circumstances. And so we move on to the next verse. So in verse 22... It says, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Did you know, just to remind you, death is not the end of the story? Can we all say hallelujah with that? Death is not the end of the story. And we see that right here. With this, because immediately when the poor man dies, he is taken to the side of Abraham. There is the rest of the story after we die. Now, I'm going to age myself. Does anybody ever listen to or remember Paul Harvey? <laughs> he was a radio guy who has had a show called The Rest of the Story. I used to love listening to it because. He would take stories you would hear on the news, and do you ever wonder when you hear a story on the news, you always go, whatever happened to that person? And that's what he would do is he would paint these stories and go and do all this research to find out, you know this part of the story, but there is the rest of the story. Well, after we die is not the end of the story. There is the rest of the story. Now, what's interesting is, as we're going to be looking at this is to remember that what we're seeing is where the rich, where the poor man is right after he dies. I don't know if you know this, but the Old Testament and the New Testament speak very, very little as to what happens right after we die. It doesn't say much. The Old New Testament, particularly the New Testament, says a lot about what happens after the final judgment. In Revelation, that's what we see a lot within Revelation. But very, very, very little does it say about what happens right after we die. And because Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience here who had their Old Testaments, 
Notice what he says. He says that Lazarus will be right at the side of Abraham. He will be, in fact, the word is bosom. He will be at Abraham's bosom. And for the Jews, what that really meant was he is in a place in heaven where he is at the presence of God. He is with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who are there in heaven. And he is being comforted right at the side of Abraham. He is literally in the presence of God. Now, we know in the New Testament what happens and what, does, what do we hear happens. And again, now we don't hear much. What happens when we die? The Apostle Paul tells us when we die, we will be with Christ. With Christ. That's what we know. We don't really know much more than that at this point. But that means just like here, when we die, we are in, instantly, somehow we are, it's mystery. We are going to be in the very presence of Christ. Now look at the stark contrast, though. Abraham, who, I mean, the, Lazarus, who was so poor in so much agony and pain and no one helping him and everyone um, being ignoring him completely being dehumanized all of a sudden Lazarus is where right at the side right at the very side of Abraham being comforted you get the idea that all of his pain all of his sorrows all of, everything is just wiped out and gone sort of gives us a taste of what it says in Revelation 21. Our ultimate hope, which is there will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow. I mean, that is what we're getting a picture of that happens to Lazarus here. But there is, the story continues. And so let's take a look at what happens next. So in verse uh, 22b, in essence, it says... The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in a like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to. And none may cross from there to us. Now, like Lazarus, the rich man, after he dies is instantly transported somewhere. He's still alive. So they have that in common. There's life after this life that we have. Life after death. Again, reminding us death is not the last word. And notice that just like Lazarus, this rich man is conscious of where he is. So he's not asleep, okay? He's conscious of where he is. But you see what happens? There is a big reversal, a great reversal that happens between the rich man and Lazarus when they die. And that reversal happens because of the way 
the rich man treated Lazarus. That is why this reversal has happened. The rich man (laughs) no longer has anything, does he, to treat himself? Nothing. He cared only about himself, and now he is by himself. And one of the great ironies here is the word that is used here by Jesus. He says of the rich man, you can see a picture, he instantly is transported to where he is. And it says, he lifted up his eyes. And what does he see? At a distance, he sees Lazarus at the side of Abraham. He lifted up his eyes. The Greek actually says that three times, the word lift up, lift up, lift up. I mean, you can't be more emphasis than that. Is he lifted up his eyes and he sees Lazarus. The rich man in his earthly life spent the whole time walking what? Past Lazarus. Averting those eyes. Making sure he did not see him. And now he sees Lazarus. Now he sees this Lazarus that he had walked by and just turned around. I mean, I wonder how many times, do you ever think about this? How many times do we just sort of walk by people and turn our head and not look at them? Make sure we don't make contact with them. Don't want to engage in a conversation with them. They look different than us. They act different. We know they believe or think different. And so we just do our little things. Yes, even in church. (laughs) This sort of avoids people. All right? Here we see that now the rich man sees Lazarus. Knows his... Get it? He knows his name. (laughs) He actually knows Lazarus' name. And the continued irony is that Remember how Lazarus was barely getting scraps of food to live on? Here, the rich man is calling out to Lazarus for mercy. Is there irony there? Calling out to the very one he never gave mercy to to give him mercy. And saying, give me some water. Dip my water on my tongue. So he doesn't even have food now. He doesn't even have water. And yet he's in this anguish and this pain. And here the word, the word for anguish is actually really a, it means mental anguish. We see he's in torment, which is the physical. But here we get the idea too, he's also in this mental anguish. And the, and the illustration here uses the word flame. So flame here is a metaphor to really get across the idea of how much anguish he's in. Obviously, there's literally not a flame at this point. Okay, again, this is right after someone dies. Because if the flame was real, what would happen? He'd burn up, all right? So Jesus is trying to get across the idea of just how much anguish this rich man is in. And we also now see the rich man who had this chance to bring hope and comfort to Lazarus in his earthly life now is actually himself hopeless. Hopeless is asking for Lazarus to help the rich man. And we get in this parable the idea that, and this is the the tragic part, there's no turning back time. 
There's no like, oh, I want to go back. I want to do this all over. All right. You get the finality of what he's talking about here. So the rich man discovers that how he treated Lazarus in his earthly life, what? Really did matter. (laughs) I mean, that's what Jesus is trying to get across. What happened when he saw Lazarus, what he should have done really did matter how he treated Lazarus in his earthly life. It mattered then. It mattered to the rich man in his afterlife because now he cannot He can no longer be treated in any way. And there is this chasm where even if Lazarus, in the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Lazarus, if he said, I want to help, I want to help this rich man, even though he didn't help me, what what do we hear? Abraham says there's this huge chasm between them. You can't cross that chasm. You can't go and help him. You just get the utter tragedy of what's happened here, again, because of the rich man and how he treated the poor man, how he treated Lazarus. And so then it continues in verse 27. And he said, knowing that he can't cross his chasm, that he can't get anybody to help him at this point, he says... Then I beg you, Father, meaning Abraham, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also have come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, Abraham said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So what do you get right away in this? Now that the rich man realizes he can't do anything, he wants Abraham (laughs) to go and tell his brothers, it really matters how you treat others. (laughs) Which tells you what about his brothers? (laughs) <laughs> it runs in the family. <laughs> okay. that, isn't that true a lot of times? How we treat and who we treat others often runs in our own family with this. And Abraham says, no, I cannot do that. In fact, what we find out here is that up to this point, up to this point in this parable, we've, we've seen how much it matters to treat people. We've seen how much it mattered to Lazarus in his earthly life that no one treated him well. We see that the rich man, the treating himself, really had consequences in the afterlife of, that he did not treat, how he did not treat Lazarus. So we see it matters both. How we treat others matters both to the one's that are poor, the ones that are not being treated well, and it matters to us, the ones who should be treating people better. But did you know that it matters to someone else? Not just us. It matters to someone else. Anybody want to guess who it matters to, really matters to, of how we treat others? God, Christ, Jesus. Exactly. All right? That is who it really matters to. And what you're hearing here is Abraham telling the rich man, guess what? 
you have heard this from God over and over and over again because what? He really does care for us. He really does care for you. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, which is what they, all they had at that time, over and over and over again, God says it really matters how you treat people. He has said that over again in the Moses and the prophets, in essence, re, re, reflects the entire Old Testament. And our Bible recap group that just ended going through the Old Testament, a lot there as we're going through, but you know what you could keep seeing over and over again? The compassion of God. As much as people keep failing, as much as people keep sinning, you see God extending his compassion and telling people the poor really matter. Those in suffering really matter. Go and help them. And just one of many, there's so many different verses we can find out that we, get, we can see with that. Um, but one of those is Psalm 41, where it says, it just opens this way. Psalm 41 opens by saying, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Done. Okay. I mean, it really matters to God how we treat those, particularly those that are in need. And what Abraham also reveals here is notice what he told the rich man. They have the Old Testament. They, all they needed to do was what? Hear it. They really need, and the word here, though, is not just hear like your ears. The word is heed. They needed to not just hear it, heed it. You know what that means? That they needed to not just hear it, but do it. <laughs> All right? And they had been told over and over and over again that they should do that. And so we see God cares so much about us that he has given his word over and over again to say, guess what? It really matters how we treat each other. It really does. And in this parable, that's the, what Jesus is really trying to get across. He's trying to say, it matters. It matters to you. It matters to the person in need. It matters to God. And it has eternal consequences of how we treat each other. And just to, and you will see throughout the New Testament, Jesus again, just like the Old Testament, over and over again. We've seen that in the parables we've gone, we've gone through. It matters that we love others. It matters that we give our life for others. It matters that we treat each other well. And one passage I want to just review that really, I think Jesus takes this parable and he then just says it like it is. All right? The parable is a story that he, picked, that he paints here that we've just gone through. But here what we're going to see is Jesus in this passage just says it like it is makes it very clear to us. And this is Luke 6, 37 to 38. Jesus says, just sort of encapsulates, how are we to treat each other? He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Now, I didn't really understand this illustration, this whole idea of this good measure pressed down, shaken together. What in the heck is going on there? <laughs> okay. I looked it up. I'm like, what, what is being talked about there? Well, what is being talked about is that when you were to sell like your grain to someone, that if you had a little like um, container 
in which you would fill that grain up, what this is referring to is you would take that grain, you would pour it into the container about halfway, and you would shake it up and press it down. You'd pour a little bit more, shake it up, press it down. And the reason why you're doing that is you want to make sure that that container that you give to someone else with that grain has every little kernel of grain possible in it. And so it's the idea that the measure you have given will be given back to you. And so I want to quote this. Um, this. This really gives an idea because I think Jesus is painting a picture of just how important it is to us of how we treat one another, how much God cares about that. And I, want to, I just want to read this. Um, this is from Daryl Bach. He, did a, um, a, he has a commentary on Luke and on this passage about what does this mean in doing this. And this is what he says. He says, this illustration about, that we just talked about, good measure, pressed down, shaken together. It says, this illustration expresses God's promise to reward the disciples' gracious actions towards others. The person's activity sets the standard of God's reaction as it involves God's evaluation of the character of one's life and the pleasure God expresses at the way one has lived. In fact, some of the divine response may spill over into how God treats one in this life. In sum, the standard one uses in relation to others, the standard one uses in how they treat others, in other words, is a standard that God will apply. Jesus may well be noting the abundant blessing that comes from generosity, though one should not be too quick to note that such generosity not be equated with just prosperity. doesn't mean you're going to become like the rich man. Since it is God's forgiveness and absence of condemnation that are in view here. In fact, the major blessing, the major blessing we have in how we treat others is intimate fellowship with God. New relationships with other believers and the presence of his transforming power. Ultimately, when we treat others well, what we get out of that, and if you ever thought about this, when what we get out of that is the very presence of God. We experience that presence of God. We experience that fellowship of God. Now, I want us to remind ourselves, this is a heavy parable, <laughs> okay? You tell all of you like, oh, <laughs> all right? This is. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy parable. Jesus really wants to get the point across of how we treat one another. But I want you to know that Jesus is not doing this to put more fear on us, to put more guilt on us, to put shame on us. That is not the business Jesus is in. He's doing it because he wants us to know how much he loves us. That is the purpose of why he gives us these hard sayings, why he gives us this parable. He wants us to know it really matters how we treat others. It really matters to us, and it really matters to God. So what do we do? in response to something like this. Well, there is one word in closing. There is one word that the rich man gets right. The word repent. Because what the rich man says when he uses that word repent is that there is a way, not in the afterlife, but there is a way in this life for it to say, today I want to change. Today, I want to be like Christ. Today, I want to focus on others. I want to learn to treat others well. 
And this word repentance is really a gift itself from God that he's given us. The way in which we can just simply say to God in our heart, and when we say, God, I have not treated others well. And we can ask God for that forgiveness. And you know what? When we do, when we ask God for forgiveness for the things we've done, as instantly as when you went from death to new life, when we ask God for forgiveness, he is faithful to always, always forgive us. And that forgiveness we ask for lasts beyond this life. That forgiveness we ask for reverberates all the way into the afterlife. So if we want to say, wow, look at these different ways I've treated others. Lord, forgive me. He will forgive you of that. He will forgive you of that and give you the ability and the power to say, now I'm going to start treating others well. And I want to say also, amen. <laughs> I want to say also, and just remember that because we can't, you can just overwhelm, my gosh, you can't believe how much. And I would say, let me ask, add one more thing here. If you can, don't. Don't just ask God for the forgiveness. That's the number one thing to do. Go and seek forgiveness from those you've hurt. Go and seek forgiveness to the ones you haven't treated well. Go and ask them for that forgiveness and restore that relationship. And I want to end then finally with that repentance we're talking about. That is not just something we as Christians, those who know Christ today, can do to continue in that forgiveness that Christ has given us. But repentance is the way we enter into that relationship with God. I mean, if you don't know Christ, it is just like asking for others, I mean, asking God for forgiveness for how you've treated others. If we don't know Christ, we repent, go to him, we say, we repent of our sins, Lord. And we say, forgive us. And this is what it says, what Jesus says, is when we do that, truly, truly, I say to you, he says this in John 55, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That eternal life that Jesus speaks about, that gift of that eternal life is something we ask for and repent of here so we will then have that for eternity, knowing that we're going to be in the presence of Christ. So as I end, you know, my hope, this is, it, it is, this is a difficult parable. <laughs> it's really convicting me as I've gone through it and saying, wow, how do I treat others? And what are those subtle ways in which I need to to look at how I'm treating others. But my hope and prayer, my hope and prayer for us as a little church is that each one of us knows it really matters how we treat one another. It matters to those who we treat. It matters to us. And of course, it matters to God. And you know, it is when we treat others with the love that Christ loved us that we as a church are on the way to fulfilling the vision and mission of our church. And again, what is that? <laughs> Becoming like Christ for the sake of others. And we do that by being a safe place to heal and a brave place to grow. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you give us these words that can really sometimes cut at our heart 
They can really look, have us look at our lives. But you do that because you love us. Because you want us to be a people who love others as you have loved us. And as we do that, others love us <laughs> as they have been loved with Christ, Lord. And I just pray for anybody who doesn't know you right now, Lord, that through that simple repentance, saying, I want to turn from my earthly ways, turn from my sins, that I believe and put my faith in Christ, that that forgiveness, that eternal life is instant. May they do that today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you all stand? And for our benediction... I thought this was uh, a, a good verse to just leave and remind ourselves as you go, as you go fellowship <laughs> with one another, as you go treat one another, as we're treated to the food that we get to every week. Um, but let me um, just end with this. This is from John thirteen thirty four. Jesus gave us only one new commandment. It's really easy. Only one thing did Jesus say, here is my new commandment. And there's only one. And this is what he says in John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.